We're Missio Phoenix, a community of God's people learning to live in God's ways for the sake of our city. We're going to do a little skipping around today. So we're, we're going to be doing kind of an overview sample of the life of a man named Abram. And so we're going to be at Genesis 12, Genesis 15, and Genesis 22, just so you know, okay? And that'll kind of give us a, a broad snapshot of what goes on in the life of this man and why that matters to us today. So if you've been tracking with us the last few weeks, we've been trying to move through from the beginning of the story in creation when God creates all things and he creates a special creature humans to partner with him, that he actually gives them the right to have authority and power and dominion over his world that he made, as long as we're doing it in partnership with him, right? But then there's a rebellion, and we, humans, the first two humans as representatives on our behalf decide, no, 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 we don't need to partner with you. We could figure out life on our own, and that causes all kinds of chaos and destruction, and death enters into the story. And so they're sent away from this beautiful utopian garden of a world, and the world as we know it now it's a mess, isn't it? And yet God is on a mission ever since that moment to bring healing and restoration, to bring life in its fullness. And so we saw that he actually, last week we were looking at the story of the flood where he washes the world of every human who had every intention of being evil and wicked at the time. And he says, no, no, we're going to have this recreation moment. Let me remind you what I put you here for. And yet we also heard in that story that even that family he chose, Noah's family, they still had this seed of wickedness in them, of rebellion, of saying, we don't need you, God. We could do it our own way. And yet God says, I'm still going to be faithful, though. I'm still going to do my part to make sure that this world is a good place and that these humans take up their role of partnering with me. And so from there, he, we, we heard the first time this word covenant, that God makes a covenant, which I just simply said last week is like the deepest form of a promise you can make between two people. And I stand by that definition, but it's, it's a small definition. And so what I would love to do is watch a video right now from the Bible Project that explains a little further what that strange word covenant means, because it actually is a very important word for those of us who say we follow Jesus. This word covenant is what the story of Scripture, the story of the whole world is all about. So watch this with me. If you've been around Christians, you've probably heard of the idea of having a personal relationship with God, which could mean different things in the Bible, like having God as a friend, or your father, or maybe your teacher. But there's one particular way that the Bible talks about this relationship that you find all over. But strangely, we don't talk about it that much. And that's the idea of a partnership with God. A partnership like working alongside someone to accomplish a goal together. Right. And this is actually what you see at the beginning of the Bible. God creates this good world full of all of this potential. And then God appoints these unique creatures, humans, as his partners in bringing more and more goodness out of all that potential. But the humans don't want to partner with God. They rebel and try to create a world on their own terms. And so this broken partnership is the Bible's explanation for why we're stuck in a world of corruption and injustice and the tragedy of death. It's not like there's just one or two humans who have bailed on this relationship. In the story of the Bible, everyone has abandoned the partnership with God. So what God does is select a smaller group of people out of the many. 
and he makes a new partnership with them called a covenant. And in a covenant, God makes promises and then in exchange asks his partner to fulfill certain commitments. And the purpose of all of this is to somehow use this covenant relationship to renew his partnership with everybody else. Now, there are actually four times in the Old Testament that we're told God initiates a covenant relationship with Noah, Abraham, the nation of Israel, and King David. And it's through these that God is forming a covenant family into which all people will eventually be invited. So let's see how these work. The first one is with Noah. So in this story, God has just brought the flood to cleanse the world of humanity's corruption. And Noah and his family are the only ones left. And so God makes a covenant with Noah saying, listen, I know that humans will continue to be evil, but despite that, I'm not going to destroy it like this again. Instead, the earth will be this reliable place for us to work together. Great. So what does Noah have to do? Nothing. And that's what's so interesting about this first covenant is that God is promising to be faithful even though he knows humans won't be. The next time we see God make a covenant is with a man named Abraham. God chooses him, promises to bless him, give him a large family, lots of land where they can flourish. And in return, God asks Abraham to trust him and train up his family to do what is right and just. And the whole reason for this covenant is God says that somehow he's going to bring his blessing to all families of the world through this one family. So that's Abraham. The next time we see God make a covenant is when Abraham's family grows into the tribe of Israel. And this covenant is with the whole tribe. God asks them to obey a set of laws, which are these guidelines for living well as a community of God's partners. And if they do this, then God promises to bless them and that they will become a people who then represent him to the rest of humanity. That's the covenant with Israel. The last covenant is with King David. Yeah, the tribe of Israel has become this large nation ruled by David. And God asked David and his descendants to partner with him by leading Israel in obeying the laws and doing what is right and just. And God promises that one day, one of David's sons will come and extend God's kingdom of peace and blessing over all the nations. So those are the four covenants that God makes in order to restore his partnership with the whole world. But here's what happens. Israel breaks the covenant. They worship other gods, they allow horrible injustice, and so they lose their land and are forced off into exile. So it seems hopeless. But during this time, Israel's prophets talked about a day when God would restore these covenants in spite of Israel's failure, somehow. Yeah, they called it the new covenant. And this is actually what's so interesting about Jesus is that he's introduced into this story as the one who fulfills all of these covenant relationships. We're told that he's from the family of Abraham, and so he will bring the blessings of that family to the whole world. We're told that he's the faithful Israelite who is able to truly obey the law. And we're told that he's the king from the line of David. And so he goes about extending God's kingdom of justice and peace to all. And that's really remarkable for one guy. Yeah, and what it highlights is perhaps the most surprising claim of all made about this man, that Jesus is no mere human, but rather God become human. And God did this in order to be that faithful covenant partner that we are all made to be, but have failed to be. And so through Jesus, God has opened up a way for anyone to be in a renewed partnership with him. So Jesus calls people to follow him and become part of this new covenant family. And despite their failures, Jesus is committed to making them into partners who are becoming more and more faithful. The story of the Bible ends 
with a vision of a fully renewed world, full of goodness and peace. And there's this renewed humanity there, partnering together with God to expand the goodness of his creation. And so the end of the Bible story is really a new beginning. So like I said last week, we heard that about that first covenant being made with Noah. And then we heard that Noah had descendants. He had children. He had uh, one son, Ham. Why did you name your son Ham? I don't know. It's destined to be bad, right? And it was. This dude did something pretty gnarly, pretty wicked. And his people are cursed for it. That's the people of Canaan, which later would be the Canaanites, the land of Canaan, where God's people, Israel, would be promised, hey, this is going to be your land. But there's these enemies there called the Canaanites, right? So you'll hear some about that today. But then there is these two other sons, Japheth and Shem. And out of the line of Shem, one of Noah's sons who honored him when Ham was being disobedient, many years later, this guy named Abram was born. And so in Genesis chapter 12, let me pray as you turn there, and then I'll read the first few verses. Father, we ask that you would open up our hearts and our ears and our minds to receive your word this morning, Lord, that we would be transformed by you, that we would hear you speak to us, and that we would listen and obey. God, that we would receive your love as it's spoken. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis 12, verse 1, the Lord said to Abram, this guy who was a descendant of Noah, many, many years later, he says, go out from your land, from your relatives and your father's house, and go to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Now, that sounds pretty good, right? Like if, if God audibly spoke to you and was like, hey, I'm going to do some cool things through you. And there's going to be a whole nation, like a whole new empire is going to be coming out of you, right? You and your descendants, your people. And I'm going to bless you like wildly. Like you're going to have so much but I'm giving it to you so that you can also then be a blessing to the rest of the world around you. And when the rest of the world around you sees you and, and they're good to you, man, they'll be blessed too. But if they're against you, if the rest of the world, if, if any other nation comes against you, don't worry, I got you. I got you back, all right? I'll take care of them. That sounds pretty good, doesn't it? And what does Abraham have to do? He's got to leave everything he knows. Leave this land that you've lived in your whole life. Leave your relatives. Leave your whole way of life. And go somewhere, I'll tell you later. Pretty scary, right? How many of you would be up for that? All right, God. It's easy for us to, looking at this now in the story, go like, oh, yeah, yeah, totally, I would do that, especially if we know what kind of promises might come through it, right? But I don't know, dude. My, my, my son's waving his hand wildly, but, like, sometimes I ask you to do stuff, and I tell you what good can come of it, and you don't listen to me. Sometimes you do, though. So I'm the same way, you know? When people promise me things, they're like, hey, this will go, go good for you if you listen. And I'm like, nah, I don't want to do that. I think that's in all of us. And yet, somehow, verse 4, So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. 
Abram was 75 years old when he left Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated and the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, remember who do we say Canaan was? Descendant of Ham, the wicked son of Noah. So when they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the site of Shechem at the Oak of Morah. At the time, the Canaanites were in the land. And the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, that's to your children, to come, I will give this land. So Abram built an altar there to the Lord who appeared to him. And from there, he moved on to the hill country east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. He built an altar to the Lord there and he called on the name of the Lord. Then Abram journeyed by stages to the Negev. So what happens here is Abram listens to God. He goes and on the way, there's this little like waypoint stop, this little pit stop. And he goes, hey, you see this big, huge land here? You see this land with your enemies here? One day, one day your descendants are going to own this land. But not you, and not today. So keep moving, right? So it's like this little like foretaste, this little preview. Hey, hey, remember that promise I gave you? I will bless your descendants. You will become a great nation, and I'll bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to come through on this. God's already made up his mind before Abram's really even done anything quite yet. And so for us, we hear the story, and we're like, that's, that's a strange story, happened thousands of years ago. Okay, cool. Good for Abram, whoever this guy is, right? But for us, remember, this is coming out of the context of a story where like all the world was wicked. Everybody in the world was always doing wicked. That means they were in rebellion against God. They said, God, we don't need you to tell us how to live. We can decide for ourselves. And God chooses a family and sets them apart. And says, all right, here we go. I'm going I'm to start fresh and we're going to try this again, my project with partnering with humanity. And then that family messes up. And here we are generations later and God has not wiped the world clean still. He's kept his promise to Noah no, no, I will continue to keep this covenant. I will keep working alongside humans. I will keep drawing them back to myself and restoring you to what you're meant to be. And so he picks this man who came out of Noah's family. And is there anything special or significant about Abram so far? No. And in fact, we're not going to read the whole story of Abram, but let me tell you, the dude is a mess. He's a hot mess. So here's some of the highlights of the parts I'm not going to read. Just even in the same chapter right now, he's traveling through this land of Egypt and he's afraid, hey, my wife is beautiful. I mean, she's a 10, right? And when these other people see her, like I know the the whole world is wicked, right? And all these guys are going to want my wife and they'll kill me in order to get her. Like seriously, that's in the story. And he goes, okay, hey, Sarai, do me a favor. Just tell everyone you're my sister instead. What does that mean for her? Now all these guys are like, oh, she's free. She's on the market. And in a very patriarchal society where women had no rights to themselves, what does Pharaoh do? The guy in charge of the world, basically. Oh, I want this one as one of my wives to come and live with me. And what does Abram get in the meantime? They're like, hey, 
Thanks for giving us your sister. Here's a bunch of land. Here's a bunch of cattle. Here's a bunch of stuff. And so he's like growing in status, growing in wealth, living fat off of it, while she is basically taken prisoner. That's Abram. And not only does he treat his own wife that way, then later when they start to doubt this promise that God gave of I will give you children and I will give you lots of descendants and there will be a huge nation that grows from you, both he and his wife are like, look, we're getting old. This isn't happening. What do we do? So they take advantage of one of their servant women in order to have a child with Abram. She doesn't have a choice in it. And when she has a child and his wife Sarai starts getting jealous because she couldn't have a child, they send her away. You and your child get out of here. And they send them off to die in the desert. This story is not about a hero we have in Abram. But who shows up to the servant girl and her child in the wilderness? God. She's out there crying. This child's going to die. And God shows up and he says, hey, don't be afraid. I am with you. I will protect you. And she goes, you are the God who sees me. Like you really see me and you hear me, and you know me, and you know my need, and you've come to rescue me. So this story is not about Abram being a pretty cool guy. And if we just would trust like Abram and be willing to leave all the things that we know and drop them when God gives us a promise and we go follow him, like that's how we could tell this story, right? But this dude's a mess. He has moments of trusting in God. And we'll get to that, how, how much God honors that but he's a mess just like you and I. He's not the hero of the story. Chapter 15, let's jump ahead. What else happens in the life of Abram? Chapter 15 starts like this. After these events, so I'm gonna stop right there. After what events, right? I just skipped a couple chapters. This is like when uh, my wife, I can pick on her because she's not in the room today. So don't tell her I shared this, okay? But Bethany sometimes will just like out of nowhere, we're sitting there and she'll go, what if nobody shows up? Oh, shows up to what? What are you talking about? She's like, oh, I'm sorry. In my head, we were having this conversation and like we talked about this whole thing and then I just like finished the conversation out loud. I'm like, you can't do that. I don't, I'm not a mind reader, right? And so this is kind of what I would do to you right now. Like, oh, by the way, after these events, what events, Chris? We just skipped three chapters. Sorry about that. Okay. So to catch you up a little bit, Abraham has like grown and accumulated wealth. He's got land. He's got cattle. He's got all this stuff. He's got a bunch of servants working for him. In fact, he's got like 318 male servants working for him that when his nephew Lot, remember we heard his name, gets into some trouble and he gets taken prisoner by another land, Abraham goes, hey, 318 men, come with me. And they go on this covert rescue mission go rescue Lot and get him out of captivity. And while they do it, they take out some pretty bad dudes. Like it's a, it's a crazy story. And then they get some of these other lands, their stuff back. In fact, Sodom is one of those lands. And the king of Sodom shows up and he's like, thank you. You can take whatever you want. And Abraham's like, no, 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 no. I, I'm not taking anything from you. Because then people will say like, oh, Abraham got wealthy because of Sodom. And he's like, no, just take your stuff back. So he rescues Lot. He gets his kingdom, their stuff back. 
There's some other weird stuff that happens. But after these events, then the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. So this is why we had to give that backstory. Why would God have to say, don't be afraid? If you just went on this like covert mission to, I don't know, ISIS, or to like go rescue someone out of human trafficking from the cartel or whatever, you'd be looking over your shoulder, right? Are they gonna come back after me? So he's made all these other nations mad at him. And God goes, don't be afraid. I'm your shield. I'm your protector. Your reward will be very great. And this is what Abram says. But Abram said, Lord God, what can you give me? Since I'm childless and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. What is he saying right here? What's my reward, God? Okay, I get the, don't be afraid. You're going to be my shield, my protection. Cool, thanks. But then God says, and I'm your reward. Like you're going to get something in the future from me. And he goes, what? What are you going to give me? Because that very first thing you promised me, we're in our 90s now, and it still hasn't happened. I have no child. Abraham's getting like pretty blunt with God right now. God, you said you would do this, and it hasn't happened yet. And you know what's crazy? We're, we're going to continue reading, and God does not fault Abram for that. He doesn't shut that down, his questioning. He doesn't say, how dare you talk to me like that? I was going to do it, Abram, but now, since you're whining, right? Like, he doesn't do that. He responds to him. And we see this all throughout the Psalms in the Bible, too, that we can actually come to God with our emotions, with our anger, even, with our frustrations, with our confusion, even with our doubt. And we could bring that before God and go, God, you've said this, your word says this, and yet here's my reality. And God listens. He is the God who sees you. He's the God who hears you. He's the God who knows your need. So Abram says that, hey, uh, you can give me all kinds of stuff. That's great. My reward, wealth, land, more cattle, cool. But I'm going to die, and I have no descendants to give it to like you promised. And in this culture, this culture of honor, shame, it would have been a great honor to have a child who can carry on your name who you can give that to. And so now you have a legacy going on. But to die and have no one to give that to but a servant would have meant your legacy stops there. And so that feels like shame in that culture. And that's what he's saying. There's this guy, Eleazar. He's a pretty good dude. Like his name literally means God is my help. He's a cool guy, but he's not my son. And I got to give everything to him. And this is what God says. So Abram continued, verse three. Look, you have given me no offspring, so a slave born in my house will be my heir. Now the word of the Lord came to him. This one will not be your heir. Instead, one who comes from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look at the sky and count the stars if you are able to count them. Now, I know we live in the city. You go outside, you try to look at the stars. You might see a few, right? You ever go like up north a little bit, get out of town a little bit, you go camping and you just look up at the sky at nighttime on a clear night. It's incredible, right? As a city slicker, as a city boy myself growing up, I would look up and, all right, 
popcorn ceiling. This is popcorn ceiling right here. And I would try to count all the little specks of the popcorn ceiling. And then I'd be like, 403. Oh, wait, did I count that one already? And then I'd have to start all over because I couldn't sleep at night. So this is like trying to count the stars. He goes, can you count them? Nope. Look at that. Try to count them if you can. And they said to him, your offspring will be that numerous. Verse 6, Abram believed the Lord, and God credited to him as righteous. That word righteous just means you are in a right relationship now. So Abram believed that God gave this promise. He believed God would come through, and God says, you are now right with me. You're in a right relationship with me. Abram's done some pretty crazy stuff. He's not the best of people. But what makes him right with God? Trusting him. Trusting his word. Trusting his promise. Remember in that video we saw, God knows I'm keeping my promises even when you don't keep your commitment. All he's asking in return is not that we do all the right things and follow all the rules perfectly, but that we trust him. And then there's this, further on in their exchange, Abram's like, okay, cool, I, I, I'm getting all these kids. And God goes, listen, that other promise I gave you of land, remember this, this promise is going all the way back to the beginning of the story in, in creation. When God said to the first two humans, I want you to be fruitful and multiply. So have babies and also continue to cultivate this garden and spread it out so that the whole earth looks like this. Descendants and land. Why in the world did God promise Abram descendants and land? He's reminding us that his work of creation, he's still at it. And God goes, yeah, I'm going to give you land too. Remember what I told you I'd, I'd give to your descendants? I'm going to give you land too. And Abram asked him, God, how can I know that that's true? Again, pretty bold with God. How can I know that's true? That would be like if I told my sons, hey, we're going to go get some ice cream after this. Sorry, we're not, guys. Man, now I feel like I should because that's like super mean. And they're like, yeah, how do I know? How can I be sure? And I go, just, just wait, we're going to go. Like it's in, I don't know, an hour. And they're like, but how can I know, Dad? I'm like, what? I, I don't, just trust me. God doesn't do that. God goes, here, here's how you know. And he does something super strange here. He proceeds with this, this ceremony of cutting animals in half walking through the middle of them. I'm about to do a wedding with a, a young couple who's been coming here for a while in March, and we've been talking about, like, what are some ways, because a marriage is, like, the best picture we have of what a covenant looks like, um, even though we break it a lot as humans, but God doesn't break his covenant. And so we're talking about, like, what are some symbols you could show in your wedding ceremony to show, like, a covenant promise, right? So I'm going to offer this one to them. Let's get a, a heifer, a goat, and a ram, and I'm just going to, like, take a bone saw, and we're just going to cut them in half, right? Make sure you wear something to cover up your dress. You don't want to get some blood on that. And then we're going to toss them to the side, and then there's going to be some birds there too. And then, oh, there's probably going to be, like, some vultures. I want to try to come down and get them because this is what happens to Abram. And he's, like, running off and shooing them away. So I'll do that. And then you guys just are going to hand in hand in your beautiful dress and your nice suit. You're going to walk in between the two smelly, bloody, dead animals. I don't know if they're going to do that. 
Probably not. We might have to come up with another, another symbol. I think I heard why, right? Yeah, why? <laughs> why in the world does God say, here's how you know. Go get a goat and a ram and a heifer and chop them in half. This was actually a common practice in this culture. And we see this in Jeremiah 34, that when two people, two humans would make an agreement together, like you want everyone to know this agreement is for sure. They would do this and they would cut these animals in half and they would together, both of them, walk in between the two halves of the animal parts. And what they were saying and what they were signifying to everybody else is, if I don't come through on my end of the agreement, death and destruction, let this be like me. Let this happen to me. If I don't come through with my commitment to this partnership, then you could tear me in half. It's like, this goes way deeper than a pinky promise, you guys. This is like, this is happening for sure. Because everybody knows I can, I can have this dude killed if he doesn't do it. So God goes, listen, my word is sure. He takes, he takes a ceremony that he knows Abram's familiar with in his culture, right? God didn't make this up like just to be a strange, weird dude. He goes, let me speak to you in your language. So part these animals. And then you're thinking, okay, who's this agreement between? Who are the two parties in this story? God and Abram, right? So who's going to walk in between these animal parts? That's what we would think, right? Except this is what happens. Verse 12, as the sun was setting, this is after Abram's done all this. He's probably covered in blood. I know this is a weird one to have kids in for us, right? And, and then he's trying to like shoo the vultures away. Verse 12, as the sun was setting, a deep sleep came over Abram and suddenly great terror and darkness descended on him. That, that phrase, the Hebrew phrase for a deep sleep that came over him is the same phrase used at the very beginning in Genesis when God caused Adam to fall into a deep sleep in order to take out of his half and create another person. Do you remember that? Abram wasn't just tired from cutting animals apart. God puts Abram in a deep sleep. And then in verses 17 through 18, when the sun had set and it was dark, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch appeared and passed between the divided animals. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying, I give this land to your offspring from the brook of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates River. And it goes on to say how big it's going to be. Do you remember, some of you have heard the story of Exodus, which we're going to get to later in the year when God's leading his people through the wilderness. And how do they know where to go? There's a, what was it? Well, yes, that's another, another point. But at this point, when they're in the wilderness, God leads them by cloud of smoke during the day and a pillar of fire at night. What just passed through here? A smoke pot, a pillar of fire. God himself, goes through the ceremony of saying, if I don't come through on my word, Abram, may this happen to me. But Abram's in a deep sleep. So what happens if Abram doesn't come through on his word? God's the only one who passes through making that commitment. I will take the punishment if this partnership does not work out. 
if God doesn't come through and if Abram doesn't come through. And with all that context, now we get to the hardest story that we have in Abram's life. Go to Genesis 22. Now, finally, many years later, Abram has had a son named Isaac. Abram has had his name now changed to Abraham, which just means you're going to be father of many in that language. Sarai being changed to Sarah, and Sarah and Abraham have a child they name Isaac, which means son of laughter, because she laughs at the very thought of her and her old age having a son. Genesis 22. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and Abraham said, here I am. Take your son, God said, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. When you hear those words again, how he describes him. Take your son, your only son, whom you love. Go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. I know, I know we got some distraction going on. Did you hear what we just read? Take your son, your only son, who you love. And remember how we just heard about some animals being sacrificed? I want you to take your son, your only son who you love, and go sacrifice him. The son you promised me for generations, God? For decades, I mean? The son you promised me for years and years? Really? Other gods in this culture would have their people sacrifice children. But not this, not the true God, not the living God, not the God of life who breathes life into humans. Why would he do this? This is, is a story, honestly, just between you and I, that has really caused me a lot of issues in the past. Like, I, I don't understand this. So Abram, verse three, and this is a hard part for me too. So Abram got up early in the morning. He saddled his donkey. He took with him two of his young men and his son Isaac. He split wood for a burnt offering, set out to go to the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abram looked up and saw the place in the distance. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. The boy and I will go over there to worship. Then we'll come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac. In his hand, he took the fire and the knife. The two of them walked on together. So Abraham's got something to start the fire, a flint. He's got a knife. Isaac, his son, is carrying the very wood that he's going to be sacrificed on up this mountain. Then Isaac spoke to his father Abraham and said, My father, and he replied, Here I am, son. It's the same reply he gave to God earlier. Here I am. Take note of that. We're going to hear it again. And Isaac said, The fire and the wood are here. Dad, where's the lamb that we're going to sacrifice for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. Abraham doesn't know how true that is. Then the two of them walked on together. When they arrived at the place, I know I don't put all this up here. I want to keep reading through. When they arrived at the place that God had told him about, Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood. He bound his son Isaac and placed him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out and took the knife to sacrifice his son. But an angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. He replied, here I am. Now I just, real quick pause. That phrase, here I am, in the Hebrew it's this word, he nehi. 
And there's another, like 170-something times in Scripture, there's a variation of that used. I am here. And it's just like one vowel, one syllable different in the Hebrew. But when you have it, this is very important. When you have it phrased this way, here I am, it always is used in a much different context. So when, when you see in Scripture, I am here, it's usually followed by, I am here to do something, right? I'm here, and this is what I'm about. I'm here, and this is what I came to do. I'm here. Pay attention to me. But when it's flipped, here I am, it's an openness to the person who's calling you. So God, at the beginning of chapter 22, hey, Abraham, here I am, God. I am your servant. I'm willing to do whatever you're calling me to do. I don't know what it is. You called me to leave the only home I ever knew, and I trusted you. You told me that you would give me a child, 99 years old, you did it. Here I am, God, whatever you say. And then after the horrifying thing he hears God say, he's walking with his son, who he knows he's got to sacrifice, and his son's like, hey, Dad, here I am, son. It's not just an openness, it's like a deep relational openness. I'm here for you. Whatever, whatever you request, I'm, I'm here for you. What is it? And then on the mountaintop, right when he's getting ready to do the deed, Abraham, Abraham. Yes, God, here I am. Please, what, please, you got something different, right? Here I am. I'm listening. That kind of openness that we come to God with. I don't know about you, but a lot of times I come to God with, God, look, look at me. I'm right here doing this stuff that I think you want me to do. Like, come on, where are you at? Where are you at? But this posture of, here I am, where do you want me? It's a completely different kind of posture. That's the kind of posture that God says, I will credit that as righteousness. And so what does God do? He says, hey, stop. You aren't going to sacrifice your son. In fact, that was never the intent of God. Remember, we heard the very beginning, God tested Abraham. That was never the intent, you guys. Why would a good God ask him to do such a horrific thing? Here's the thing, he doesn't. He takes us through this scene in order to paint us a picture. Do you remember who walked through the two halves of the animals? God alone. Son, God will provide the lamb, and he does. And so centuries later, God has set this scene for his people, Israel, the descendants of Abraham, who he's called to trust him, to follow him, and to bless the rest of the world around them. They failed miserably time and time again at their job. And God says, that's okay, I've got you. I'm providing the sacrifice. When Abraham was told to stop, he looked up and he saw a ram caught in the bushes and that became their sacrifice. And they named that place, the Lord provides. And many years later, God's own lamb, God's own son, God's son, his own son who he loves, would travel up a hill carrying the wood that he would be sacrificed on. This is setting the scene for that story. And you know, before he did that, he also entered into a ceremony type of meal in a sense with his friends, with his followers. 
We call it the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist, communion. He sat down to have a meal with his friends. And what did he do? He tore the bread in half. He tore the bread in half, you guys. If you've ever thought, what a weird thing we do that we eat some bread and drink some wine every time we get together. This is what Jesus is doing. He goes, remember long ago, do you remember how God, my father promised that he would provide the sacrifice? Here it is. This bread is my body being torn in half. This cup is my blood being spilled. You remember that horrific moment? It's happening to me, Jesus says. And the very next thing we see is his friends who are supposed to keep watch with him fall into a deep sleep because Jesus walks that road alone. They fall into a deep sleep and he's the only one who is torn into, separated from his father, blood pouring from his side, walking up the hill with the very wood that he would be sacrificed on, on his back. Jesus becomes the lamb, the sacrifice to say, hey, God's kept his part of the deal, but humans haven't. But God said, I will cover you even when you don't do it. Even when you fail at your part of the partnership, I will be the one torn in two. And so that's what Jesus does. So listen, all of us sitting here today, standing here today, whatever we've done, whatever we've thought, wherever we've been, whatever has been done to us. If you're feeling like, I just don't know how to get back to God. I don't know how to fulfill my end of this partnership. Like, I know you're saying, Chris, like God wants to partner with us, that we're to be his representatives. We're made in his image. We're supposed to care for this world. And yet I don't know how to do that. God knows. And he knew that you and I wouldn't be able to do it perfectly. And so he alone fulfills that partnership. Jesus, that's why he became human. God in the form of man to fulfill that full partnership between us and him. And so when we go to the table right now, that's what we're signifying. That's what we are honoring. That's what we are remembering. We remember the bread torn in two halves. We remember the blood of the covenant as we take the juice. We remember that God is faithful when we are not. Now, if I stop there, if I stop there, then that means we can just go on and do whatever, right? But then what happened after that moment? If you remember, God has all throughout so far been showing us these recreation moments. No, no, no. Let me make this right. Let me bring you into partnership with me. And so Jesus rises again in the power of the Spirit, and he gives the Spirit to you and I so that we can actually enter into partnership with him, that we can fulfill the things God has called us to, that we can say, God, here I am. What is it you would have for me? Amen? Let's go to the table together. There's little cups at each of these little tables at the sides here as well. Grab a cup. Take the bread, remember Jesus was torn in two on our behalf. Take the cup, remember his blood covers you and I. But remember that there's new life that comes after that. Then we'll continue to sing and worship.